So the farewell discourse of Jesus is reaching what we might call the greatest intensity about the time we hit Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 17. And uh, so we're concluding the last few words of John chapter 14, moving into John chapter 15. Now, when we were together last, looking at the this last pericope or passage from John 14, we see that Jesus tells them that they are not to let their hearts be troubled because after all, he says, but the helper in verse 26, the Holy Spirit, so there you have the identification. We, we know who the helper is. There's, there's not even a pause here. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is saying, in just a little while, I'm going to the Father. In just a little while, you will no longer see me. But I am leaving with you the Holy Spirit, sending the Holy Spirit. I have asked the Father, and the Father is sending the Holy Spirit. We talked about the fact that in, uh, in the, the Western tradition, all of Western Christianity, there is the affirmation, which I think is most consistent with Scripture, that it is the Father and the Son who send the Holy Spirit. And then you see, as, it passes, as the passage continues, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, we dare not pass over that too quickly. This bring to our remembrance. This is, a, this is really, really pastoral. Our memory is so ridiculously bad. We not only fail to remember, we misremember. I... Uh, did a thinking in public this week with Rick Atkinson. He's won the Pulitzer Prize three times. He's uh, finished this massive trilogy on World War II called the Liberation Trilogy. And uh, the first volume of his trilogy on the American Revolution is out. The English are coming, covering 1755-1777. But looking back to the uh, events of World War II, his father, who he loves dearly and respects massively was alive. So he addresses in the book why he doesn't do oral history. And he says, I don't do oral history because the further you get from those events, the more the memories are discontinuous with uh, what was said earlier. Human beings misremember. And so you can have a soldier who says, I was there, this is exactly how it happened. And he means it, he's not lying, but his memory has been changed over a period of seven decades so that it's, 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 it's not what it once was. We also misremember in priority. And then this varies individual by individual. Some of us remember an emotional state much better than we remember cognitive facts. This can cause some interesting marriage memories where just in terms of an event, one party says, well, I know exactly how I felt. I know exactly what I was thinking. Well, that's a mismatch. And, and, and that doesn't, by the way, take 70 years. That can take 70 minutes. It's just, this is, this is how we are. And, and then, of course, we have the cognitive problem that we just, we just don't remember as much as we would like to remember. You can commit a lot of Scripture to your memory, but if you don't keep it alive... The, the actual cognitive part of it goes away. But it says that the Holy Spirit will bring to our 
remembrance. This has to be, at least in part, the fulfillment of what we are told, that if we hide the Word of God in our heart, uh, we won't depart from God's way. Well, it's not because we have this cognitive operation always going. Uh, it's because the Holy Spirit works that word, knitting it into our lives in such a way that it's in our intuitions, it's in our emotions, it's in our, our reasoning. And uh, so when we say, you know, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, is that cognitive? Yes, but it's supracognitive. It, it's beyond the cognitive. We actually, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, resist sin in ways that might not even be conscious to us. This makes us hate things that we should hate. The Holy Spirit makes us hate things we should hate, love things we should love. But this remembrance part becomes absolutely crucial. Of course, as we said last week, this is the Jesus Christ who will shortly be saying, do this in remembrance of me. He spoke of leaving peace in verse 27. In verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Well, this is the biblical logic of the lesser to the greater. The, the, lesser, the lesser is drawn to the greater. That is, the creature is drawn, is drawn to the creator. And even in the Godhead, the, uh, the Son is drawn to the Father. Now, we have to be careful here in Trinitarian theology. In terms of essence and being, there is no greater or lesser amongst the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there is an order of procession and uh, an order of authority, as you see here, as uh, is reflected in the earthly ministry of Jesus most visibly. And so Jesus says to the disciples, you should be happy for me that I go to the Father, because th that order of from the lesser to the greater means the same way you are drawn to me, understand I am drawn to my Father. And that will be consummately demonstrated in the high priestly prayer of Christ to the Father coming up in John 17. Now, that's just good for us to know, this, this rightful drawing of the lesser to the greater. It's, it's, it's quite natural that a child follows the parrot and is drawn to the parent. It's just quite natural that in the youngest child, when the child gets tired, you just see the arms go up looking for mom or dad. It, uh, it's in the, the fact that in a moment of crisis, where the child's eyes go immediately? Where are they? Where are they? Uh, it's, that, it's that constant attraction of the greater on the part of the lesser. And uh, that's... Uh, that, and again, that, that, that's true throughout politics and, and, uh, and American, well, for that matter, human cultural life. You know, uh, people tend to follow the social cues of those who have the greatest exposure. And of course, sometimes in a hierarchical society, such as class-based Britain, you actually had that as a part of the understanding. That was also the understanding of the founding fathers in the United States. They, they clearly held to a form of public character, which meant... They were to live before people such that people would act rightly in their public deportment. Uh, and uh, the same thing is inculcated in the British upper classes. You know, these things are, this, this must be done in order that the entire civilization will, will act well and do right. All kinds of things embedded in that, but there is this natural and nearly unstoppable attraction to the greater. That's just the way it works. And whether the greater is greater metaphysically and ontologically, such as 
the difference between the creature and the creator, or socially, uh, for any kinds of reasons, it could be good or bad. The, the fact is that, that that instinct is there. Jesus says, if you understand that I'm going to the Father, you will be happy for me. In the same way, if you were to go to your Father, you would be happy. And I'm not leaving you alone. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving you in a better condition. So in verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you. It's a very interesting little phrase, isn't it? Talk much with you. This is a talking Savior. And it reminds us of the fact that, and again, just as we saw in earlier verses in John 14, when, you know, Philip asked for a theophany, and, and Jesus is the theophany. They're looking for a word from the Lord. Jesus has been talking to them. And so, but Jesus' talking ministry is coming to an end. His, his redemptive ministry, his sacrificial substitutionary ministry is what is before him. The talking ministry is coming to an end. And then he says something interesting. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus says, the ruler of the age is coming. Well, the ruler of the age is coming. Is, is, is that who's going to arrest Jesus? Satan? No, but it's very clear. Just understand. Anyone who is not under the domain of the true and living God is in the domain of Satan and doing Satan's business. So even as it will be, you know, soldiers who will come and arrest Jesus, they are from the domain of Satan. Satan is coming for me. The ruler of this world is how he describes him. But he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. He says, the, the, the devil, the, that is the, the one identified here as the ruler of this age, has no claim on him. That's just really crucial. You know, Jesus isn't doing much talking, much more talking to the disciples. But what he's saying is really important. He's saying, look, this is not the devil winning one. This is not Satan gaining an advantage by arresting me. This is the Father's plan. Satan has no claim on me. I, I, I'm going because I am going from the lesser to the greater to the Father. Not, don't be misunderstanding what happens in the next few hours. It is the ruler of the world who is coming for me, but he has no claim on me. I'm doing this because the Father has told me to do this. He has commanded me. Notice, again, don't miss this, the parallel, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, at the very end of this passage, he says, the Father has commanded me. Just another, another underlining of the pattern of authority here. But he also gives the reason why. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, that again is just exactly the same. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says here, I'm going to obey what the Father has commanded me so that the world will know that I love him. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus says, it's not just true that when you obey me, you show you love me. It's also true that when I obey the Father, I demonstrate that I love the Father. So that from the lesser to the greater also has to do with a pattern of obedience in which the, the actual relationship of the lesser to the greater is demonstrated in obedience. Again, immediately, this is what parenthood is all about. 
You know, we, we don't raise our children so that they obey us because it's convenient for us. By the way, it is convenient. Disobedience is quite inconvenient. I was looking through some old uh, digital photographs. You know, I don't know how many pictures my parents have of me, but it's, it's a pittance of what can be weekly available by means of a smartphone. I don't even know how we're going to find things, but I found a post by Katie of Benjamin, our uh, now days away from being five-year-old. He was about two, and he just looked like the most beautiful child in the world. And uh, Katie, just with, she's got a sly sense of humor when she posts about her children. And she just posted, and she said, lest you think he's a cherub, he's been disobeying all day like it's his job. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there you go, okay, I, can, I get that. That's what a two-year-old does. It's, it's, it's a two-year-old's job. It's a parent's job to break the two-year-old's job. And, uh, and civilization, the entire civilization depends upon that, by the way. And uh, so you look at that and you go, okay, that's exactly right. If you, it's just like you got to say to the child, okay? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the positive side. If you don't keep my commandments, I'm going to love you in a whole new way. Now that's, that's just a part of what it means that obedience is the demonstration of love. I find that just beautiful, and I, I find it missed in this passage. I, I didn't see a single commentator mention this, but it's right there in the pattern where Jesus comes to the end after he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When he explains why he's obeying the Father, he says, I'm doing what's commanded so that the world may know that I love the Father. Again, it's love. It's not just that I'm the Son of the Father. It's not just that I obey the Father, but that I love the Father. And then the final words, rise, let us go from here. Okay, that, that, that is a scene change. It indicates that something's changing. They're, they're, they're getting up, they're going somewhere else. This is why you have uh, liberal New Testament scholars who say, look, this is a bunch of stuff pasted together at the end of the Gospel of John. Well, that's because they look at everything as coming from various sources. It's incompatible to them as a presupposition that the, this is the verbally inspired Word of God coming through the beloved disciple. But instead, what we see here is the fact that the time is short and Jesus is teaching as they're in motion. They are, they're in motion. So get up, rise. So they're moving. This isn't a placid you know, uh, instructional setting, like in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not that at all. This is not Jesus and the intimacy of a leisurely time around the table, or that is around eating. Uh, this is rather Jesus on the move in his obedience to the Father. This is Jesus on the way to the cross. Jesus headed for his arrest. And what's fascinating in this is that there is one more I am revelation coming. And, and notice, it comes now. Now, one of the problems is that if, if we study the, uh, the seven I am statements of the Gospel of John, let's just say uh, we, uh, we take that. And by the way, I did a sermon series on these years ago, and I'm glad I did. But let me tell you, the problem with doing a sermon series on these statements is that if you're not careful, you take them out of their context and, and so when Jesus says, 
as we shall see, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember that the vine is going to the Father. So don't take John 15 out of the context of John 14 or you lose its emotional force. Jesus has just said, I'm leaving. I'm only talking to you a little while. In a little while, you will no longer see me, even though you see me now. I'm going to the Father. And you should be happy for me that I go to the Father. But now he says, I am. And again, there is that locution, I am. It's that phrase that goes right back to Exodus, the bush that burned and was not consumed. Moses says, who shall I say that you are? What is your name? And he says, I am that I am. It's a clear claim of divinity. Everyone understood it. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now remember, Again, if you take this out of context, it sounds like Jesus is just talking theology here. And he is, but there's more than that, because remember the, the, the issue of the attraction of the, less, the, the greater on the part of the lesser is exactly what he's been talking about for verses and verses and verses, having to do with the disciples to him, the basic pattern of the creature to the creator, and then of the son to the father. But now he says, I am, invoking that language, so he's going to say something. I'm what? The true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Well, there's the greater and the lesser. The vine dresser turns out to be the greater than the vine. Interesting. Because the vine dresser is the one who owns the, the vineyard. It's the master, the lord of the vineyard. The vine does the bidding of the vine dresser. But we are the branches of the vine. Now, we're going to have to slow down here for a moment because Jesus doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. Why would Jesus say, I'm the true vine? Or, or, what other vines are there? Is this, is, this, uh, is this some kind of comparison? Or is it, do, we, do we have to get the right vine in order to find the true vine? So much concentrated here. In order to understand it, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And so I invite you to do just that. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, we begin reading in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and the thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
So in this passage, Israel is the vineyard. He speaks of Israel as a vineyard that is to bring grapes, but instead has yielded wild, useless, you could put in the word in creation order, rebellious grapes. And here you see the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord, speaking very clearly these words of God's judgment through the prophet on Israel, the rebellious vineyard. Look at Isaiah chapter 27. We'll just look at a few verses. Verses 2 through 6. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. So again, you have God's judgment upon his vineyard, and it's a declaration that more judgment is to come, but on the other side of judgment, there is restoration for this vineyard. We also need to look at the 80th Psalm. Look at Psalm 80. Let's just look at verses 8 through 9 for the sake of time. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So, even as you continue in this passage, you'll notice that just speaking about the vine and the vineyard again, the language here is that God brought a vine out of Egypt. Very interesting. He brought a vine as if he were leaving, and he just took this vine, and he planted his vine in a new place. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm the true vine? What, what, what is he saying? What Israel had failed to do, Christ will do. Christ is going to do more than Israel failed to do, but Israel's Failure is now going to be infinitely surpassed by Christ's obedience. And, and now Christ is the true vine. No longer any frustration with the failure of humanity uh, to keep its covenants, including the failure of Israel to keep its covenant, God's wrath, heartbreak over Israel. Is going to be followed by his magnificent satisfaction in his son. And his son, the true vine, will bring forth no wild grapes. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. No wild grapes. And it is because, as we shall see, it is not just that Christ is the vine, but that we are the branches. That is, we are the branches in Him. We belong to Him. We are as integral to Christ by His atoning work as the branches of a vine are to the vine itself. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, one of the most often used descriptions of God's judgment and wrath in the Old Testament is upon the tree that gives no fruit. Now even a branch that gives no fruit. Now we are told that if you love me, remember, keep the context. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the one who does not keep his commandments is revealed not to be a part of the vine. The father, the vine dresser, cuts off that branch. This is not some change in direction. This is just an amplification of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples in John 14. Already you are clean. Very interesting word. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus is actually making very clear that he's speaking to them as if all the events of the, of the days and hours before him are already accomplished. He's speaking as, as it's the same kind of context you find in Romans chapter 8, where we're told that, uh, that the order of salvation includes the fact that we have been glorified. Well, we haven't quite been glorified yet, but it's already accomplished in God's eternal plan, so you can actually speak of it in our human sense as if it's already been accomplished, because there's absolutely no chance it won't be accomplished. He now speaks to the disciples as if they are saved, as if they, atonement has been made, because it is so certain and sure that it's going to happen that he can speak to them in just this way right now. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's just an astounding passage, and I think there are probably more evangelical Christians in our circles who are familiar with this passage now than 10 years ago, at least partly due to uh, the attention to the vine and the branches as applied to ecclesiology, a uh, very helpful uh, pastoral approach that uh, comes from the Sydney Anglicans and uh, has been very helpful even to this church in thinking through what it means that Christ is the vine and that we are the branches, what this means for church membership, what this means for the deployment of Christ's people uh, to God's glory in the church, and, and that's good. That's good, but I just want to offer a word of warning. Don't, don't forget any of that, but just remember that the first meaning here is soteriology, not ecclesiology. The, the first context is soteriology. It's, it's covenant theology. It explains how we are included in the economy of God's salvation. It, 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 it means that this explains 
how we are forgiven our sins and given the gift of life everlasting, as is promised, as we remember even in John 3.16. So the first issue is soteriological. It has to do with our salvation. But having been saved, that second dimension is about our sanctification, about our fruit-bearing, about our discipleship, and yes, ecclesiology. We are mutual branches united to one living vine, and the purpose of that vine is that we bear fruit to the glory of the Father, which is exactly what Jesus says here. In verse 4, the command is actually a very strange word to us. Not, not necessarily strange to... It's not strange even to perhaps the disciples hearing Jesus speak this way. It's, in our cultural moment, this is, this is odd. Uh, it's, the, it's the command, it's the imperative, abide. When we think of uh, abide, we think of abode. Uh, we think of a house. We abide in a house. We, and the, the, you could say we abide in Louisville, but that's not as true as abiding in a house because at least in our context, to abide means we kind of live in it and fill it out. This is, this is now our abode. This is us. Uh, this is our private place. This is a, you know, it's got our pictures on the wall. Someone else walking in here, they're going to know it's not their house because somebody else's grandchildren's pictures are, shall I say, everywhere. Uh, It's our house in that this is where we sleep. This is where we raise our children. This is where we we welcome people into our house. And when they come into our house, they receive our fellowship and and hospitality. So we we, we abide in that sense. But we, we don't metaphorically think of abiding much of anywhere else. And frankly... We've got to think a minute to figure out what that would mean. If, if someone commands to us, abide, well, what do you do? You know, you, you look at each other and say, I'm all for it. What does it mean? Well, in this sense, to abide means to exist. It is the most fundamental meaning. And uh, it has to do, for example, with the fact that we're told that Jesus came in the Incarnation to abide with us, all the way back to John chapter 1. So at least part of the Incarnation is that Jesus took his existence among us, and and even as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself to the point that he took his abode in a human body. He He even was willing to take on human flesh. For us to abide in Him, it's to understand that we exist in Him, and we have no existence apart from Him. We, we abide in Him. It means, if nothing else, we forswear any other abode. We exist nowhere else. We only truly exist in Christ. Any other existence can be taken away from us, but existing in Christ by God's grace and by His irrevocable promise, it's where we exist forever. We now exist in Christ. If we exist in Christ, nothing else matters. We can be homeless. Uh, We can be like those in the early church that you see Peter describing as those who are 
Now, you know, the homeless, they are aliens and strangers in the world because that's, that's fine because we abide, we abide in Christ. We actually don't have to abide anywhere else. And, uh, and any other abode is uh, temporary at best. I don't know if you saw the horror of the uh, fires in, uh, around Estes Park, Colorado just a, a week ago or so. Uh, Craig and Selwyn Parker, you know, our own members were there and had to flee uh, Estes Park because of the fires coming so fast. And uh, there was a couple, the news report, uh, a couple in their 80s who had their abode, uh, what they called their little piece of heaven, a house they lived in for like six, six decades there uh, in the territory of the park, and they, uh, they refused to leave it, and they were both burned. That's mistaking where you abide. That's a horrible, fatal mistake about where you abide. Uh, we abide only in Christ. Everything, everything else uh, is, a, is temporary and it will all burn. It will all pass away. But we abide in Christ. But the most important thing here is that we just forswear any other existence. We just, we just abide in Him. And, and this is why you will find commands like rest. Well, you know, we... Again, it goes back to a child. You know, you command a child to rest. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. But you know what? The child will eventually rest. And uh, we're to find our rest in Christ, to yield to Christ. We are to abide in Him. But he also says, abide in me and I in you. Now, this is interesting. So we, again, the existence, we exist in Christ, but that's because Christ also exists in us. We talk about the indwelling Christ. Paul talks about how we are united to Christ. Again, it's an irrevocable, indivisible, uniting. And, and to, so to abide in this sense means to yield to this reality and to celebrate this reality and to reorient our entire worldview so that this reality is the most basic reality. That's what it means to abide. It means, here's the most important fact of my life right now, I abide in Christ. It's actually the most important thing you can know about me. I actually exist in Christ. Oh, and, and by the way, it comes with the fact that Christ exists in me. That is the most important eternal truth of my life. By God's grace, I abide in Christ. And by the way, that can never be severed. I, I can never at any point in eternity fail to abide in Christ. Nor at any point for eternity will Christ fail to abide in me. You can lop off my head. You, you, can, you can shoot me dead. You can, you can, you know, give me tumor, termites, feed me to a tiger. I abide in Christ, and Christ abides in me. I abide in this earthly frame, but that's only temporary. I abide in a house, that's only temporary. I abide in many different places on planet Earth at certain points. But all that's actually just a foretaste of what it means to abide in Christ forever. And it's already true. Again, notice that just as Jesus was saying, you are clean to the disciples. They already abide in him. It's not, it's not something that might happen. It's not something that if things go well with this cross and resurrection thing, this just might work out. No, it's already declared to be absolutely, fundamentally, irrevocably, unchangeably true. 
in very sweet language, the fruit now comes up. Now remember, go back to Isaiah chapter 5, chapter 27. Israel's judged because it didn't bring forth fruit as the vine. And instead it brought forth wild grapes, not so for Christ's people. I am the vine, verse 5, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Again, it, it's not like if things work out well. It's just, this is what it is. You abide in me, guess what? You're a branch, you bring forth fruit. Why? Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why? Because even as you exist in me and abide in me, I abide in you, and where I am, I bring forth fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. Again, that works both ways. And so it's just, it's just spectacular here. So Christ says, you don't actually have to worry about uh, the fruit because not only are you abiding in me, I'm abiding in you. And where I am, there is fruit. But you will know that you are abiding in me and I abide in you because if you love me, you will keep my Commandments. So this is visible fruit. So now we're told this is, there, there's going to be visible fruit where you find Christ's authentic believers, those who are truly abiding in him and he abiding in them, then you're going to find fruit. And, and that really helps us. That also applies to not only our soteriological understanding of salvation and to our understanding of sanctification, it does apply to our ecclesiology, and that's what we're looking for in each other. Fruit. To the glory of God, that's the visible display of the fact that we are indeed branches of the vine and that we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us because there will be fruit where Christ abides. The branches who abide in Christ will bring forth fruit. But it will be God who does it, for apart from me you can do nothing Words of judgment, like in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Catch a theme there? He also talks about his words abiding in us in verse 7. That's very powerful. And, and um, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, remember he said, uh, the Holy Spirit will bring my words to remembrance. Isn't that sweet? So Now, if we're attached to the vine... This is what the Holy Spirit does. His, Christ's words abide in us. Jesus says, I'm not going to talk to you much more right now. Isn't that interesting, that little phrase? I'm not going to be talking to you much longer. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be talking to you eternally. I'm going to be talking to you eternally because my words are going to abide in you because I abide in you. It's like you're going to have an internal teacher. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, again, this is, this is susceptible to being contorted into some kind of prosperity theology or word-faith declaration. But Jesus is talking to those who are His, and because they abide in Him, what they will ask is what He properly would have them to ask. So again, when we ask, we've always got to ask in the context, not, of, not my will, but thine be done, which is the very way Jesus taught us to ask. And so we're asking a father who means better for us than we could imagine. It is perfectly legitimate for us to ask what we think would be best for us or for someone else, but it's always in the context that we actually trust him to do that which is right and best. But 
it's not wrong to ask. It's right to ask and ask in the right spirit. Well, abiding in Christ, it will be done for us. By this is my Father glorified, said Christ, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's, it comes back in this kind of recurring refrain. It's like a symphony in which the, the same pattern, the same musical theme comes back again and again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How that's really sweet. Find your existence, Jesus says, in my love. You know, where do we exist? In Christ's love. Isn't that sweet? It's just, so Christ's love is so invincible and it's so real and it's so eternal that we actually exist in it. Where'd you wake up this morning? Well, in your bedroom, in your house, in Louisville, Kentucky. If you're a branch, you woke up this morning abiding in the love of Christ. And that's the sweetest thing you can know. The time is short as Jesus is speaking here to the disciples. Comes back to the commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There again, it's, 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 this is not discontinuous. Jesus, in this passage, continually goes back to the refrains of John chapter 14. This isn't, this isn't pasted together. This is a symphony that is reaching its, its most majestic movement. All the previous musical themes are being drawn together. These things I have spoken to you. I'm not going to say many things to you, Jesus says. But now he says, these things that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, here's what's, here's what's interesting and very encouraging. When the disciples hear Jesus say, I'm not going to talk to you much more. You can look at that and say, well, we kind of know what's going on. We know the timetable, the chronology. We know what's coming. So Jesus is saying, look, they're going to come and arrest me. They're going to take me away. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be betrayed. It's just, you know, the, the, that's there. But, but think of it Think of it differently. Think of it on the part of the disciples, and Jesus says, I'm not going to talk to you much more. Think of Peter and John 6. Just think of Peter and John 6. When many of those who claimed to be his disciples went away and walked with him no more, and uh, then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you also going to go away? Peter responds, you're not surprised by that, given Matthew chapter 16. Peter responds, but do you remember exactly what Peter said? He didn't just say, no, Lord, we're not leaving. He said, Jesus says, do you also want to go away? Peter actually says, Lord, to whom would we go? What does he say next? He says, you have the words of eternal life. And then he says, and we have come to know that you are the Holy Son of God. But remember what he said. 
His, his first thought when, when he's thinking about being separated from Christ is, you're the one with the words. You're the one with the words of eternal life. That's exactly what Peter said. That's the first thing he says about Jesus. You're the, you're the one who has the right words. And now Jesus says, I'm not going to talk to you much longer. Those words must have been horrifying. Except for the fact Jesus said, I'm sending the helper. He's going to bring my words to your remembrance. But now Jesus is also saying, you're going to abide in me. I'm going to abide in you. But notice this last, this last phrase here. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just think of what's about to happen. And Jesus said, if you abide in me, then you have my words. And I've given you these words, these words, in order that my joy would be complete. And your joy may be full. In order that my joy, Christ says, may be in you. Now, just think, what is Jesus getting ready to do? What, is, what will the world say is about to happen to Jesus? Joy. The Apostle Paul will describe Jesus as being willing to suffer all these things for the joy that was set before him. It's astounding. This is all about joy. Not a joy the world can understand. But the world that is, the joy that is God's own personal possession shared most preciously with his own son. And then through the son to those who abide in the son. Well, we're out of time. But... Here's what we know from just looking at these verses. The end of John chapter 14 and the beginning of John chapter 15. We aren't who we thought we were and we don't live where we thought we did. We're branches of a vine who exist in Jesus Christ. And uh, as Jesus was headed to the cross, he basically said to the disciples, this is the most important thing I can say to you now. And I'm not going to say much more. And I find that just an overwhelming realization. It's as if any last time we get to speak as Christians to each other. And who knows when that last time will be. We say, our joy is complete. For we abide in Christ. We exist in Him. He exists in us. We exist as branches together. Nothing can ever change that. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us so much. As you gave the disciples through Christ in these moments, thank you for giving these words to us. And Father, even as right now, 
By the inspiration of these written words, the Holy Spirit brings these words to our remembrance. Father, may every day of our lives you bring these words by your Spirit to our remembrance. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.